Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for being here. You can find hundreds of other episodes of this show at abriefchat.com. Some of them are interviews. Some of them aren't. All of them are there for you for free. And if you decide to support the show by becoming a member at patreon.com slash a brief chat, you can also get early access to all the episodes. And every month I publish a bonus show, which is a real grab bag. Sometimes it's poetry. Sometimes it's other audio recordings of things that I've done over the years. Sometimes it's just me talking into the microphone for 20 minutes. I have no idea what it's ever going to be for month to month, but if you're interested in finding out, you can go to patreon.com slash a brief chat. And of course, your support helps me continue this show. I'm so happy to welcome to the show, Carolina Chucci. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. We know each other from the Shakespeare Zoom that I think I've mentioned on this uh, show before, uh, a monthly gathering of people who read a Shakespeare play together. Uh, And we are here to talk about literature, but not Shakespeare. We're going to talk about Anne Bronte. But before we do that, let's just talk about you a little bit. Will you just tell folks where you're based and how you became a Bronte fan? Uh, Sure. I'm uh, in the south of Argentina in like the head of Patagonia, like the head from like geographically speaking, not okay. more, not, not politically stuff. I became a Bronte fan, I think I was 18. I was uh, a fan of Emily. I read Wuthering Heights when I was 16 and I liked the book, but I didn't love it. And a few years later, I was just wandering around one of the English language bookstores in my city, and I found uh, a dog-eared copy of Wuthering Heights, and I bought it, and figured, you know what, I've I've been meaning to read more classics, let's give this one a shot, and I loved it. I don't know if 16-year-old me wasn't ready for it, or if it's one of those books that you really need to read in the original language, but... It's become one of my favorite books I read almost every year. I can quote entire passages from it. And I started reading about the author. And there's not very much about her, if you know that. Uh, if you've ever read anything about the Brontes, you know that theirs is a, a group history, mostly because none of them lived long enough for a full biography. And there were also private people who left very few, with the exception of Charlotte, they left very few papers. And when I was reading about the Bolandais, I started reading more and more about Anne. The first few articles I read, she was just an afterthought. Like people were saying, yeah, she just wrote to, to not be left out, or she just, and her books are the most boring. And, and I, I almost believed it like I didn't actually invest any mental headspace (laughs) into that until I found the preface to the second edition of Tenant of the Tenant of Welcome Hall and I read that it's a page and a half and I read a page and a half and it's like okay yes there's no way this woman only wrote because her sisters were doing so and there is no way that this woman is writing anything boring and her books were not accessible, at least in my city. Maybe they were in Buenos Aires, I don't know, but I couldn't access them here. I didn't have an ebook. I did not have, I mean, I was 18, 19. I was a full time university student, didn't have a job. 
So I just uh, signed on to this oh, this website. It's called Bookmuch. You can just sort of swap books for free. And I got both of Anne's uh, books. I got Agnes Gray, her first novel from, I think it came from the UK. And then I've got, I got The Tenants of Falfo Hall from Malaysia. It took me years, but by the time I had finished both books, I was an Abronte fan for life. Can you tell us, uh, kind of give us a little sketch of who was Anne? Where does she fit into this literary family? You've kind of, you've hinted at it that she's sometimes an afterthought in scholarly work or was. Can you just tell us a little more about her as a person? Yes, uh, Anne Bronte was the youngest of all the Bronte children. People usually think, okay, there were four. There were three sisters and there was uh, their brother Branwell. Uh, there were six children, actually, two of them, the two older daughters, died in infancy. Anne grew up as the youngest. She's the only one who never got to know her mother because she died when she was a baby. She was a very shy person. So a lot of people, like even her sister Charlotte, if you read her, her writings about Anne, you can tell us she loved her, but she never really knew her. She has been misunderstood for centuries because of that. Also because she died and left Charlotte in charge of her work and Charlotte, in an, in an attempt to protect her sister's reputation, she banned Tennant from being republished. So the, for a long time, the only book of hers that kept getting reprinted was Agnes Grey, which is which I love. But it's not the type of book that's going to make an impact in history. So she's often considered like the lesser Bronte. And I've been thrilled the past few years to see that that has changed. She is standing equally as tall as Charlotte and Emily. And I think <laughs> I think one of the happiest moments of my life was when I was uh, browsing a, a spa, like a normal, regular, not English language bookstore here, and I came across La Inquilina de Welford Hall, which is a translation of Tennant. And I was like, yes, okay, we did it. You mentioned Anne's first book, um, Agnes Gray, which came out in 1847. Can you, can you just give us a, a sketch of what it's about? And I'm also curious about um, I've so I haven't read Agnes Gray, but I have read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which I will uh, give my opinion on a little bit later. But I am curious about your comments about Agnes Gray, that it, it isn't the kind of book that is necessarily going to make a historical impact. So can you give us just a little insight into it? Let me first uh, clarify what I mean by when I say that it's not going to make an impact. I think it's a great book. Yes, it has some technical imperfections, but it's a really, really solid story with wonderful characters and very controversial themes for a time. Actually, in, in some ways, it's still controversial today, but it's a, a very quiet novel. And it, it might sound weird to somebody who has read it because it has a lot of bad topics, like a lot of hard topics, like abuse and uh, mistreatment uh, uh, and mistreatment of children and animals and worker exploitation. So, but it's a much quiet, much more quiet book than Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. 
people have compared Anne to Jane Austen in her style. But let me just go back and, and tell you what it's about. It's about a young woman named Agnes, who, after her father's death, decides to start working as a governess to help her family and to help educate children. Like she thinks about that as the happiest, most honorable task. And she's the youngest of the two. I mean, there are two girls in that family and she's the youngest and both her mom and her sister think that, think of her as little Agnes. They think that she's not strong enough or experienced enough to undertake this job. But Agnes goes on and she uh, finds two positions. First, with a family with uh, two, I think, young children that she's in charge of. She's there less than a year. She's fired because, well, she does not work miracles with children that she cannot discipline. And she tries again. And there she stays a few years where she uh, becomes close to the daughters. They are spoiled, they are, but they grow to love each other. And there's a love, a love story with, may I say, the only one of the Bronte men that I would personally find attractive. <laughs> like he's a normal man, yes, no hidden wives in attics, no long complicated plots for vengeance, just normal, a, a normal man with a normal job who just tries to do his best. It's a beautiful story. It's based heavily in Anne's own experiences as a governess. How was it received when it was published? It was mostly sort of ignored. It was published in the same volume with Wuthering uh, Heights. And shortly after Jane Eyre was published, so people just sort of say, yeah, it's there. It's okay. It's nice. It could. It has scenes that are very brutal and unbelievable. And those scenes are the ones that she copied from life. And that always annoyed me because the thing is, Agnes Gray has been compared to Jenner. Uh, they're both governesses. They both have love stories. They both uh, are one type of orphans. Yes, Jane Eyre is has lost both her parents, Agnes only her father, and both are plain. And at that time, having a heroine who was not beautiful was not very common. Actually, Jane Eyre was praised for that. And the thing is, and don't get me wrong, Jane Eyre is a beautiful story. Yes, I have my issues with Rochester, but Jane herself is wonderful. And the book itself is wonderful. But... Agnes Gray was written first. So the whole innovation of having a heroine who was not beautiful, the, the whole young woman goes out on her own, that came from Anne first. And I mean, I'm not saying that it was a like divine inspiration, but, all, but I mean, both Charlotte and Anne have worked in education, which was the only possible field for educated poor women. It might not be life-changing in the sense that Jenner might be. It's not gothic. It's a quiet story. It's contained within some very 
English countryside, family, rich family limits. But it delves into things like, like I told you, uh, worker exploitation, animal abuse, child abuse in some ways, uh, child neglect for sure, religious faith. Anne was very religious. She wasn't a Calvinist. Yes, at that time when, when she wrote this book, the predominant, uh, I think it was the Calvinists that thought that they believed that some people were predestined to go to heaven and the rest were just going to hell. And Anne believed that that was not true, that everyone could gain access to heaven and that God loved everyone and was, was always given another chance. And that faith makes its way to Agnes. Agnes believes that too. And the man she ultimately marries thinks that too. It's an interesting and quite lovely exploration and sort of progression from thought process of most of us are just going to hell. Who knows why we are alive, but it doesn't matter really what we do because we're doomed. So it's about faith and finding yourself and growing up and finding kindness in your heart for everybody around you. I love this book. Yeah. So when I say that it's not uh, life-changing or history-making, I mean that it didn't rock public perception at the time. And now it could be easy to sort of take for granted the, time, the ways in which it was innovative then. So then the next year, uh, she published the book that I have read, which is The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which came out in 1848. And of the three books by Brontes that I've read, it is easily my favorite. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have read it if it wasn't for you and for our mutual friend, Amber, uh, who sent me a copy of it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You shouldn't be thanking me. I should be thanking you. So thank you. Um, It's a really, it's a fabulous book. It much like uh, the way that you've just described Agnes, it feels quite shocking for its time. Um, it also feels like it has at least some of the same elements, particularly the the questions of uh, faith and of people's access um, to faith and to salvation. Uh, can you uh, just give us a little thumbnail sketch of Tenant? I mean, um, brief is not really my thing, as you might have noticed by now, but yeah. <laughs> The Tenant of Wildfell Hall is, I don't want to give away the entire plot for people who haven't No, that's it. super important. Actually, it's funny but, that you say that because in the copy that Amber sent me, she put all these notes like, don't read this, don't read this introduction before you read this. She crossed out, she like blacked out stuff on the back of the book and she just wrote spoilers under it. So yeah, there's a, it, we don't want to spoil the story, I guess. She's such a kindred spirit. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> So let me see how I can just still keep it mysterious and still talk about the, the main topics, the main themes. So the tenet of Awful Hall starts with a letter that a man, Gilbert Markham, writes to a friend. And he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to tell you a story. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. So it starts very playfully between, in, a, in a letter between two friends. And he starts talking about his youth. And how he was a farmer who didn't really want to be a farmer, but he had responsibilities and he had a widowed mother and a sister and a younger brother. So he had to. And this stranger comes to 
uh, the village. And she rents a house, the uh, Wildflower Hall, which, which shocks everyone because that house has fallen to disrepair. Everybody thinks that she's aloof and rude. People uh, visit her and say, you know what, let's come here with me. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Give me your entire backstory. And this woman does not. And when people give her unsolicited advice, she's like, you know what, I'm not going to take it because you're wrong. I'm going to say that very politely, but you're absolutely wrong and I'm right. And so everybody hates her. He dislikes her too because he is very young and has a very big ego and is offended that she does not, that this beautiful stranger doesn't immediately fall at his feet. But then he gets to know her better and he starts to respect her and he falls in love with her. But rumors start to abound about her and the owner of the house she's leasing. She has a child and people start saying, yeah, she's not, she's not a widow. He is enraged at it. He thinks they're lying. And then he confronts her and she gives her, she gives him, sorry, her journal. And the second half of the story, or most of the second half of the story is told as journal entries from Helen, by Helen, who's this, this woman's name, telling her story. And then, well, we come back to the present and the whole, this whole issues begin to take place. It was a shocking book. It, in, not in so many words, but it said, you know what? Sometimes the law is wrong and you have to break it. And it's morally correct. And not only did it criticize the law, but it it said sometimes women have to be the one to take the lead in dealing with injustice in in breaking laws that are not correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, there, especially uh, as I'm speaking to you from a, a United States that continues to move further and further back into the past. Uh, in terms of our own laws, a lot of what happens in this book, the the kind of assertion of people's humanity and dignity and their right to control their fate, a lot of that feels like it's mildly controversial even now. So in 1848, I can only imagine what it must have felt like. Um, I want to quote Mary Sinclair about this book, but I'm going to give away the entire plot. Yeah, it's hard to talk about this book without ruining it for people a little bit. Yeah, well, let's just say that um, there is a character who has an abusive relative, somebody who she should defer to, even when he's wrong because women were property, even when he's cruel, and even when he might harm other people. So her actions, said Mary Sinclair, I'm paraphrasing because I don't want to say exactly what Mary Sinclair said because that's a giant spoiler, but her actions reverberated, and this is the quote, reverberated against Victorian England. I read this book and I felt those reverberations because I knew I was reading an Victorian novel. No wonder that Charlotte was surprised that her timid little sister wrote this book. Your three remaining siblings all died within 12 months. You're going to be extra sensitive to people criticizing them. 
So I understand why she banned it. I disagree, but I understand it. But it was uh, this action of banning it that led to this incredible book and the staggering courage that took at the time to write it and publish it to remain hidden for so long. It's a it's an incredible book, and I recommend anyone everyone to to read it. At least if you're interested in the Brontes or 19th century literature or feminist literature, this is a book to read. It can get a little slower at times, especially if you're not used to the Victorian writing style, but I recommend it to everyone. I, I, every time I see somebody reading it, I, I just wait to see what they think. And so far, only one person hasn't liked it. You alluded to this earlier, but Anne wrote a really wonderful introduction to the second edition of the book. And this was after a lot of criticism of the book. And in this introduction to the second edition, she she really just like doubled down, you know, see, saying, yes, I know I, I hear your criticism and let me remake some of the points that I made in this book. It's just it's really fabulous. And you mentioned that that was a thing that had really sparked your interest in her in the first place was seeing this introduction before you'd even read the book. Do you just want, is there anything else you'd like to say about that, about that piece? Yeah. I mean, I generally don't understand how anyone reads this preface and think, oh yeah, she was timid. I mean, maybe she was shy with people. She could have social anxiety. She could be, I mean, she grew up, she was not very socialized as a child. So maybe, yes, she was shy, but she was not weak. She was not timid, and she had a very, she had very strong opinions, and she was not afraid to say them. And one thing that I would like to uh, bring up about this this book, this preface, uh, if I may quote it a little. Please. As the story of Agnes Gray was accused of extravagant overcoloring over in those very parts that were carefully copied from the life with the most scrupulous avoidance of all exaggeration, so in the present work, I find myself censored for depicting Con Amore with a morbid love of the coarse, if not of the brutal, those scenes which I will venture to say have not been more painful for the most fastidious of my critics to read than they were for me to describe. I may be gone, I may have gone too far, in which case I shall be careful not to trouble uh, myself or my readers in the same way again. But when we have to do with vice and vicious characters, I maintain it is better to depict them as they really are than as they would wish to appear. To represent a bad thing in its least offensive light is doubtless the most agreeable course for a writer of fiction to pursue. But is it the most honest or the safest? Is it better to reveal the snares and pitfalls of life to the young and thoughtless traveler or to cover them with branches and flowers? Oh, reader, if there were less of this delicate concealment of fact, this whispering, peace, peace, when there is no peace, there would be less of sin and misery to the young of both sexes who are left to wring their bitter knowledge from experience. And, and this part, uh, I mean, yours is a, an English language podcast, uh, in the United States, yeah. So I'll give examples from there. Although I can give you a lot from my own country, and <laughs> I can give you from every country in the world. The banning of books in libraries, the censorship, 
I don't I don't know the exact name, but they call it the don't say gay law. Yeah. People being more offended when they are accused of racism or homophobia or it's still a thing, unfortunately, that people think that pointing out the problem is the problem. Right. <laughs> and worse than the actual problem. Yeah. And worse than the actual problem because the people who perpetrate the problem are usually the ones in power. Right. It's staggering how much of human nature in general and the nature of power and greed she captured in this book and in this preface. Like I gave you, I said I was going to pull a little thing. I think it pulled like a third of the entire preface. <laughs> yeah, it's short, but it does not pull any punches. It She packs At a all. lot into it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, um, I love it because it's essentially, I hear you, but no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One thing that you mentioned at the beginning was that uh, Anne's reputation among readers has changed over the years and yeah. that she's becoming better known, better appreciated. Why is that? Look, I, I don't actually know. I'm just realizing that I don't know when the full original version was republished for the first time again. I may be wrong, yes? Maybe there was some majorly famous person who said this is an amazing book and everyone was wrong. But in the circles that I move, uh, talking to other readers, and somebody read it and said, this is amazing, you have to read it. And then that person read it and said to the other person, you have to read it. So it was a lot of uh, one reader pushing it to another reader and that reader saying that it's wonderful and all of us starting screaming on the internet that you have to read Ambronte. Uh, Amber and I uh, have... We're probably responsible for half, at least, of the team and hashtag on Twitter. <laughs> so the book was republished and people read it, and so much still resonated today. And we started talking about it, and we started saying, hey, you know what? This, this is amazing. And and she was just as good as Charlotte and Emily. Well, it's been fascinating to talk to you about this, and I highly recommend that anybody listening to this read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, because it is really, really excellent. It, Like I said, it's my favorite of the Bronte novels that I've read. Uh, my guest is Carolina Chucci. It's been so great to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to tell us about Anne Bronte. It was great being here. Thank you for having me.